this week on the Backtable Podcast. I really like the fact that we're focused in this one area and we're really good at it and we do a lot of it. I think it does matter at the end of the day. People that do whatever it is, if they do a lot of it, it's going to be better to go to a place that does a lot of this stuff, whatever it is, right. uh, than somebody that's kind of dabbles in it. For me, it was very important. I, I really enjoy taking care of fibroid patients and I know it comes through to patients. They can see the passion that I have to help them yeah. and the passion that I have for treating them and they can see that and they can feel it. And so when you're doing something that you're not either very good at or you only do it a little bit, or maybe you're not even enthused about it, that will come through. And so I think you have to kind of have a little self-awareness. What, what are you good at? What do you love to do? And then if you want to be in the OBL space or in the outpatient space, you're going to need a team of people that kind of believe your mission. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com and pretty much any podcast platform out there. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week, and I'm excited to introduce our guest this week, Dr. John Lippman. John, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I really enjoy what you guys are doing. Thank you, John. Um, you know, longtime listeners probably remember uh, your episode, episode 72, uh, where you were with uh, Chris Beck discussing your UFI practice. And in that episode, you did touch upon how unique your practice is uh, in the Atlanta area. And today I wanted to kind of focus a bit on the story of how you got to where you are, since it is rather unique. And at the time was probably considered by many uh, a big risk. And, but yet here we are today where many people are, are trying to do just what you've you know done successfully. So, but before we get into that, John, I just want you to give a real quick intro. Tell us um, a little bit about your, yourself, where you've been, uh, and then we'll get to where you are now. Well, I've been practicing for a little over 30 years now. I trained uh, at Georgetown, and then uh, I did my radiology residency at Brigham and Women's, uh, then did a one-year interventional fellowship at Yale with uh, Robert White and Don Denny. And then I came to Atlanta and in a suburban practice, uh, very typical private practice group in Atlanta. And I practiced there for about 14 years uh, before I struck out on my own 17 years ago. Great. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. So from what I remember from the episode with Chris, you, you said that you started your OBL back in 2015, but tell us even before then what you were doing on your own back, I think as early as 2004, you said? Right. I mean, you know, that was really the impetus to, you know, I, I was I was used to a strong clinical, uh, having a clinic. And, uh, you know, as I say, Robert White was, you know, like Barry Katzen, you know, very clinically emphasis, you know, the, we had a clinic as a fellow. And when I took my private practice job, I kind of assumed that's what it was going to be like, uh, that I'd be able to have my own clinic. And it was a really, a quite a battle with the non-interventional colleagues who were not supportive at all of yeah. having a clinic. They just wanted you to meet the patient in the hallway and do what's on the board. And so it was a big struggle to get them finally after years being, you know, I was a partner and you had a little bit more say, but still getting 
outvoted constantly on any kind of initiative for IR. Uh, but clinic was really important to me and I just didn't want to compromise on that. And so finally I just kind of had it and said that I was going to strike out on my own and be a solo interventional radiologist. I think they thought I was pretty crazy to do that. Uh, they assumed I was leaving the area, but I stayed in Atlanta and I had talked to uh, referral sources and made sure that, yeah, I think this is something that I can do. Unfortunately, I didn't really have anybody to kind of talk this over with. I kind of took a proverbial leap, but it, it certainly worked out. And, you know, in retrospect, hindsight, I wish I had the nerve to have done it five or six years earlier. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, and that was back in 2004, you said. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so that I was uh, in an area that kind of focused on UFE. That's certainly what kind of had a name in Atlanta for doing UFE. And I provided the interventional service at a hospital that didn't have any IR. In fact, they were, they were an LTAC hospital. So they were spending lots and lots of money, over $100,000 a year to transport respirator-dependent patients to a, the main hospital 30 minutes north of where we were to do the silliest things, you know, right. the most mundane intervention, uh, thoracentesis, paracentesis, you know, but they packed them up and it cost them huge amounts of money. So right. when this hospital lost their emergency room, I knew the CEO of this big hospital system and this, this hospital was the smallest in their universe. And I knew the CEO and he knew me and he knew of my plans to leave my practice, uh, my private practice group and said, you know, he, he basically said, you know, I'll, if you come to this hospital, we'll build you what you need. What do you need? And I said, well, you need an angio suite. I need an MRI and I need recovery rooms. And he goes, well, we already got recovery rooms. The ER, you know, it's already there. Uh, the mm -hmm. rooms are there. And so they put a brand new MRI unit in there, put a brand new angio suite in there. And I did, you know, my, I just moved my practice. I got uh, leasing space uh, next to the hospital and I just hung my shingle and started doing, it was professional services, you know, it was just professional fees. Right. And that, that works, you know, pretty well for a while, but when the professional fee for UFE particularly got, got hit pretty hard, it became pretty clear that you had to have really access to the technical component mm -hmm. to really make a go of it. And so that's when kind of morphed into, uh, I found a hospital not far away, again, a small hospital. It was a joint venture hospital between Emory and the Adventist Health System. And Adventist didn't have any other hospitals in Atlanta. They had a hospital about 45 minutes north of Atlanta, but they really needed the contracting and cachet for it to make a go of itself. So it partnered with Emory on this, on this hospital. And I joint ventured an angio suite with the hospital. Hmm. In fact, I had the only joint venture in the Emory system. Emory does not, as many hospitals, they don't like to share. Right. Um, but it would, they saw an opportunity and it was a very profitable one for them. Uh, so we had a 50-50 joint venture on this angio suite and it was a very nice arrangement. It was good for them. It was good for me. Basically, I got a certain amount based on fair market value for the interventions that I perform. And so I didn't have to worry about billing and collecting. Uh, it was a really nice arrangement. I could focus on 
clinical medicine. I had an, I leased an office, say, next to the hospital, and it was a very nice arrangement. The problem there was uh, the two partners, Emory and Adventist Health System, butted heads all the time. Yeah. And eventually, Adventist just left the Atlanta market. And so the hospital was closing. They announced it uh, in July of 2014 that on Halloween, they were going to be closed that year. So we had talked about um, having our own center and this just, you know, kind of forced the issue. And so in May of 2015, we opened the Atlanta Fibroid Center and uh, it's, it's been tremendous. And that was, that was on your own though, like separate from any institution. Totally, totally on my own. I bought the space. Just let me back up real quick before we jump into th- to that one. With these ventures where you were solo and you had uh, space at these hospitals, how did you get around the exclusive contracts? Well, yeah, I mean, the pseudo-exclusive contracts yeah. were a really, it was a big deal because any of the hospitals that I wanted to partner with would just say, well, the radiology group has exclusivity. But right. um, so that kind of was a, an impediment and, and it remains an impediment to anybody trying to do this. Yeah. Fortunately, at the first hospital I worked at, you know, that I was doing professional fee only at that small LTAC hospital. Yeah. It was the one hospital that this large group who basically does, you know, all the radiology everywhere else in their system. At the time, there was this other older group that was there kind of by themselves. And the big group never bothered them because it was just, small potatoes, but once I arrived, they lost their minds and increasingly made it difficult to work there. You know, be that as it may, it, it just, uh, I found an even better opportunity with the joint venture. Right. There was a radiology group reading films, but there wasn't any interventional at the hospital. So again, they had no argument there. They, you know, yeah, yeah, it was, we were symbiotic. They did their thing. I did my thing. We, in fact, they would, you know, refer cases to me that they would otherwise have had to send out. So right, right. we were a big fish in a small pond in that situation. I mean, we had definitely favored nation status. It was very nice. Yeah. That I, I'm just curious. I'm always curious about that because I, uh, going out solo myself, you know, a couple of years ago, that was the biggest challenge is getting privileges somewhere. And, uh, and, you know, I had a space, but, um, I wanted to be able to send patients in case of, emergency and you know luckily i was able to uh, to find something but you know in these competitive markets atlanta dallas it's incredibly hard very difficult it's unfortunate because they're only hurting other irs they're not preventing vascular surgeons or interventional cardiologists or interventional yeah. nephrologists or any other interventional physician the only people they hurt are their own their own brothers and sisters in ir yeah yeah, yeah it's goofy well anyway Fast forward again, back to 2015, you, you're like, you know what, I'm going to do this on my own. And I do, I do want to talk about the importance of ownership, but even 2015, very few people were doing this. When did OEIS start? Do you remember what year? About around that time. Yeah. Um, I was yeah, going to say. Been, yeah. It's about the time that OEIS was forming. So that was, that was very helpful because you got introduced to people that were, you know, doing this, that some of whom I knew of, um, and others I had never heard of. And that was, it was very important to, to meet other people kind of doing it reinforced kind of what you're doing. And it also was helpful to kind of throw ideas and throw things around and, 
it continues to be a great resource. So I, I definitely encourage anybody that is interested in the outpatient interventional space. It doesn't have to be an OBL necessarily, but right. in the outpatient world, definitely look into OEIS. It, it has a lot of, it's a great meeting. There's a lot of uh, really valuable information. You definitely learn a lot of, on the business side of things, which is, I mean, when I went out, I, I knew nothing about the business side of of medicine or, or practice and certainly have learned a lot over the years. But, you know, you don't have to go through somebody else's uh, mistakes. You can, you know, take a shorter route. Yeah. And, and it's like you said, it's incredible for Mark, uh, for uh, networking, because I, I mean, I've met you there. My first year there, I think it was 2018. I met you there and, and a number of people. I met Franklin Yao, who's a local vascular surgeon here in Dallas, who was incredibly helpful and collaborative uh, with me here in Dallas. And, and if I hadn't gotten to OEIS, I might, I might not have met him. So, you know, it's a great crowd and, and lots of, uh, like you said, a huge resource for anybody who's either out on their own or, you know, looking, uh, like you said, to just build more of an outpatient side to your practice doesn't have to be an OBL. But, uh, so what I want to, I want to ask you, you know, because few people are doing this at that time and you talked about how you had this, you know, largely inpatient experience. But what was the main inspiration for starting your OBL? And not even just about the OBL, but like why just focusing on fibroid, you know, women's interventions? Well, I just so interested in fibroids and, and UFE and it's a, it's a great story. It's one still after, you know, UFE is not anything new, but right. yet it's still every day, even, you know, to this day, it's still new for a lot of people. and you know, I've kind of taken this as my life's work to try to educate physicians and the public about, about UFE because we continually get ignored. I mean, uh, I saw something recently in one of the, uh, internet medical sites, healthy something or other. And, you know, they had interviewed Linda Bradley, the chief of OBGYN who I know at Cleveland clinic. And they talk about the treatment options you know, and they go through all these options and they, they completely left UFE off the option list. Or if it is listed, it's, it's thrown in a, in such a confusing heap of ablation and focused ultrasound and some of these other things that either aren't very good or they're very new. It's, it's really a shame. It's UFE is one of the biggest medical breakthroughs. And I'd put it up there in significance with the pap smear and the mammogram for women. Hmm. And it's a real shame that most gynecologists uh, to this day still won't mention it as an option, or if they do, they, they really give it a disservice and has a lot of, there's a lot of urban myths about UFE right. uh, that I try to dispel every day, either through social media or in person or in, in some form or fashion, because it, we're, we're way underutilizing UFE as a, as a treatment option for women and uh, say we've got a great story and I've, I've molded, you know, my practice and my practice life around it and hopefully can continue to do this for a while. Yeah. So, uh, when you first were, you know, hatched the idea and you're like, I'm going to open this outpatient center on my own. Was, did you have any, you know, anybody shooting your idea down saying, oh, you're never gonna, you, you, you know, that'll never work. You're never going to survive on just one procedure or. Definitely commonly. I mean, even as back in 2004, when I left, you know, I was a full partner at probably the nicest private practice opportunity in, in Atlanta. And, uh, 
when I said I was going off on my own, they thought I was nuts. Um, uh, and that, you know, I'll come, you know, crawling back or, yeah. you know, and, and, um, when I started the OBL, I mean, people, uh, didn't think it was going to work. They said, you know, most of these ventures just, uh, collapse. And in fact, uh, I had to put a hundred thousand dollar bond down on my equipment. So I had leased the equipment and they added this extra hundred thousand as a bond. And I was like, well, you know, what is this for? Yeah. And they're like, well, frankly, uh, you'll probably be, uh, closed in six months. So, uh, oh this is gosh. kind of an insurance policy that was just fuel for me. I mean, yeah, I yeah. think the, like most, uh, interventional people, when you, when you tell them you can't do something or you put them on the spot like that, I mean, that's just extra fuel. I mean, uh, yeah, no, it, it totally is. I mean, it's, you know, it, haters are going to hate and, you know, it, it does drive us, especially you know, us having competitive natures, not only being physicians, but being intermediate radiologists, I think that, uh, we're, you know, to get where we are, we, we're fiercely competitive. So that kind of stuff does just fuel us. And, and at the same time, you know, I kept, you know, thinking and reminding myself, I'm like, okay, I'm going to put a bet on somebody, you know, I'm pretty comfortable putting a bet on myself. I yeah. mean, I, I felt that I'd been, I'm well-trained, you know, you try to do the right thing, you know, and you have, you have a pretty clear idea of, of stuff and you, and you focused on an area that you feel really comfortable in and confident about, you know, who better to bet on? I mean, and I, I think that's the way for a lot of the people that you come across at the OEIS meetings and, you know, people that are out there doing it, uh, they're doing it at a very high level. They're not cowboys. They're not doing something crazy. You know, uh, I think OBLs sometimes get kind of a, a bad rap because there's other specialties kind of doing some stuff across the lines that maybe they shouldn't be doing. You know, you hear about uh, certain specialties, uh, you know, doing cosmetic stuff kind of crazily and in kind of uncontrolled environments. But, you know, the, the IRs that I know that are out there doing this stuff, I mean, as you say, they're, um, they're doing it at a high level. They're doing it very safe. It's, you know, the, the safety profile at, at these centers is, is outstanding. In fact, much safer than the hospital setting. I mean, right. if you're confident in your skills and you're doing it in a very safe and thoughtful way, you can do it very successfully, which is great. And, but also you provide such an outstanding service to the community. I mean, you know, particularly during the pandemic, uh, we found, I mean, a lot of the hospitals stopped doing elective procedures. And so they weren't doing any hysterectomies, elective hysterectomies or other fibroid, uh, surgeries or, uh, and you know, weeks we stayed open. I mean, we, we were closed for a very brief amount of time, but we were an important safety valve, uh, and we were busy. And so these, uh, centers are really important. And with, you know, the CMS ruling that came down in November to slash you know, essentially interventional radiology services, uh, reimbursement by 20% right. would have a devastating impact on these centers if this was allowed to stand. Now, hopefully, uh, cooler heads will prevail here. We've already seen some movement on that, that CMS kind of softened it a little bit by making that a four year cut that it would be like nine to 10%, maybe in the first year and then the rest over the next three, but that's still yeah. You know, you're still getting a significant cut and we're hoping that, uh, there's been legislation. I, I met Gus Bilarakis 
a representative from Florida, and they've got bipartisan. He's a Republican, and he's got his counterpart, a Democratic Congress congressman from Illinois, uh, for bipartisan legislation to try to you know curb this, and hopefully we'll you know we'll get something where it's um, reasonable, not you know reduce the uh, impact here because it's just it's just really not fair to do this. I mean, it's kind of ironic that. The one place that there's budget neutrality is when it comes to physician reimbursement. The rest of the government, there's no budget neutrality whatsoever. I mean, and, and you know, our costs keep going up. I mean, right. and so it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really, uh, that's, a, that's a very difficult situation that I hope will be corrected here soon. Yeah. So um, on that same note, you know, starting an OBL and running an OBL is very expensive. How did you fund your new space at the beginning? You mentioned buying the real estate. Uh, did you, was it bootstrapping, friends and family, business partners, bank loans? How did yeah, you it was, fund it was some, some loans, but it was pretty much myself. You know, I looked at the leasing options. We, in fact, we were very close to leasing space and I'm glad I didn't do that. I mean, cause I, I was, I was worried that, you know, you get this expensive equipment into a space and you're kind of, you're kind of stuck. You're beholden. I mean, our lease that I looked at that I almost you know, went with was 83 pages long. It was this incredible document that, you know, what I couldn't do essentially. Right. And, and I just felt that once I, if I was ever in there, that I'd be kind of stuck, you know, and not be able, you know, you, you can't move this equipment easily. And I found a really nice office space, uh, that was reasonably priced and very convenient right off the interstate. We wanted to be in a location that had, you know, medical offices all around, which it did. Um, it was right off the interstate. In fact, we're convenient to the two main interstates in Atlanta. And so the location was good. It was accessible. We had plenty of parking right in, in front. Patients pull right up to the front door. It's an awesome space. Um, yeah. We brought in designers and uh, we really wanted to design it for women. We wanted to do something, you know, kind of different than the traditional office you know, medical office, medical space, because, you know, frankly, we were serving women. And so we talked to women's groups on what they would like, you know, obviously quality was important to them, but really what kept resonating was privacy. Mm -hmm. That was really important. So when we designed the center, we designed it very private, uh, and for women, all of the patients have their own private room. Uh, it's not like this recovery corral with these thin drapes in between. You know, we really wanted to make it nice for women to, to, to come there. I'm very glad we did that and listened to them. And, and just curious, I mean, it sounds like you kind of, you kind of went all out and, and didn't, you, you didn't skip on the important things, obviously. Uh, and, and I've seen a, a mix of people trying to bootstrap out there and I've tried to bootstrap and you do feel like you're compromising things at times, but sometimes it's necessary when you, you can't or you don't want to take a, a big loan out. Do you have any advice for those who maybe can't afford the real estate or can't afford the heavy duty equipment right away is just to try and get there as fast as you can? Yeah, that's a really tough question because as I say, I, I wanted to make sure that I did it and I wanted to, at the time, I wanted to make sure that no one could say that I was doing it on the cheap or I right. was doing it any, that the care that they would get at our center and everything we were doing at our center was every bit as good, if not better than the hospital. The right. hospital was kind of at the time, that was, you know, the comparison. And yeah. so I put a full angio suite in the lab. I was, I was kind of afraid to, to do a C-arm 
Yeah. And the C-arm technology obviously is a lot better now than 10 and 15 years ago. So, you know, but I wanted to make sure that I didn't have any, even the impression that I was, you know, doing it anything less than that would, could be done at a hospital. So uh, it was full angio suite. Everything was, you know, soup to nuts. Um, I wanted to, wanted to do it that way. But fortunately, you know, I had been out for a while, you know, and I'd been successful in this joint venture previously. And so I had capital that I could invest again in myself. Right. And so I did lease the equipment, but I did own the real estate. And I, I think that's really helpful because at some point, you know, you have to, you're going to have an exit and it's the, having the real estate is a nice exit strategy. For sure. And so you always have to think about the exit, even at the beginning, when you're not really thinking about exit, you really do have to kind of think about that. Yeah, for sure. And so kind of along those lines too, you know, some people out there in the outpatient setting or, you know, building OBLs, um, you know, I, I know a couple of people who they really want to try and get everything they can feeling like that's the best way to survive from the get-go in terms of procedures, you know, uh, saying, I'm going to, I'm going to try and do everything I can that I can do in the, in the, in the hospital safely in the, in the OBL setting, whether it be, uh, you know, a, an imaging guided biopsy, a thoracentesis, a paracentesis, even, you know, you know, basic stuff, a nephrostomy tube, for example. And then you have people who are very niche like yourself. And I, I want to kind of ask you, like how you feel about the importance of focusing on what you're like kind of what you're best at or what you're most passionate about and why cutting out other procedures can help and not necessarily hurt you. Well, I think you first have to look at yourself and kind of, there's like this, you know, kind of a self-awareness kind of thing that you have to understand, you know, what are you good at and what do you love to do? I remember this guy I used to practice with, uh, at my first job back, you know, at Piedmont, in that uh, practice right out of training, he used to say, all business isn't good business. So I, I do think you have to kind of remember it is a business. And so you have to do things that are going to, you know, you have to have a business plan and kind of make sure that you're not just doing everything for the sake of doing it. I mean, sometimes you get into this trap where you want to kind of save everyone from, from surgery and it doesn't matter like how much it costs or what kind of products you're using or but when you're, when it's your business, you have to look at costs and you have to look at maybe not have be able to do everything that you used to be able to do. And that's okay. I mean, um, you don't have to be everything to everybody. Now, some people want to do that and that's fine, but I really like the fact that we're focused in this one area and we're really good at it and we do a lot of it. I think it does matter at the end of the day, people that do whatever it is, if they do a lot of it, it's going to be better to go to a place that does a lot of this stuff, wh whatever it is, right. uh, than somebody that's kind of dabbles in it. And you probably get differing opinions on that. But for me, it was very important. I, I really enjoy taking care of fibroid patients. And I know it comes through to patients. They can see the passion that I have to help them yeah. and the passion that I have for treating them and caring for them. And, and it's a true privilege. It really is a privilege to care for patients and they can, they can see that and they can feel it. And so when you're doing something that you're not either very good at, or you only do it a little bit, or maybe you're not even enthused about it, that will come through. And 
for me, uh, there were certain interventions that I really didn't like to do that much. I mean, I, for me, it was dialysis work. It was for, you know, some people, their whole practice is dialysis and that's great. Right. If you're the best dialysis interventionalist, God bless you. And thank you for doing that. But that's not me. And so I think you have to kind of have a little self-awareness. What, what are you good at? What do you love to do? And then if you want to be in the OBL space or in the outpatient space, you're going to need a team of people that kind of believe your mission. For me, for us, it was people that wanted to care for women suffering with fibroids. And, you know, that's not for everybody. Uh, and some people don't like the clinical responsibility that comes with that. And so you have to get your team of people that, and it's nursing and it's, uh, you know, business people. And it's, you know, you're, you've got to have a team of people that are going to kind of execute your mission. And we've been very successful at it. And, and I, I truly love going to work every day. I mean, I know it sounds really cliche, but I do. I, I love going to work. I have just great team of people, great clinical staff, great admin staff. It's a true joy coming to work versus I know a lot of colleagues that frankly are burned out and yeah. uh, they just, they're just worn out mostly from the, the, all the hospital bureaucracy and the insurance company. Fortunately, you know, I have this oasis where I have a very efficient setup. I do cases every single morning and I walk to the other side of my OBL and I start seeing patients every afternoon and it, it's a true joy. Yeah. Well, well thank you for that. And, and, um, I, I agree with you. And, and I think it's also, I think you're very fortunate in that you've discovered and aligned both what you're good at and what you're really passionate about, because I think do a lot of people do struggle with that. Um, and, and it also takes years to determine that too, right? That's absolutely correct. Cause I get asked like by people that are in their training, I just want to go out and do an OBL like you did. How do I do that? And well, it's great. I mean, I, I hope a lot of the people listening to this will decide to go out into the outpatient space and we'll go out and, and develop OBLs because we really need more people out there doing it. It's, I think it's the way we get medicine back. Um, that's our way to get medicine back from hospitals and hospital administrators. I mean, I'm at an age where I remember, you know, the hospital being the, the doctors were, the doctors were in control of hospitals. The medical staff was in control of the hospital. Uh, in fact, they owned some of the hospitals, but today that's not the case at all. They, the hospitals are run, overrun by this exponential growth of hospital administrators that have really, in my opinion, ruined medicine, you know, really beaten down or taken away the patient physician relationship or the, we got to take that back. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the greatest aspect of, of medicine is caring for people. And I remember we talked briefly on the last back table, but I, I do think it's important to bring it up again was the, the concept of Ikigai. I don't know if you remember that, but it's like this Venn diagram. It's like, you know, the Japanese described this, this uh, kind of reason for being, and it's like this Venn diagram with four circles. It's like, you've got, it's the intersection of what you love to do what you're really good at, what you can get paid for, and what the world needs. And that mm -hmm. the center of those four intersections is Ikigai. That's the kind of reason for being. And if you can find that spot, and I think I have, 
It's, it's glorious. I mean, there are other intersections where if you find what you love and what you're good at, that's kind of passion. That's not quite yet to Ikigai. Or if you're what you can get paid for and what you're good at, that's kind of profession. If you intersect like what the world needs and what you love, that's kind of mission. You know, there's different intersections, but if you can get all four. That's a sweet spot. Yeah. That's the sweet spot. And that, nice. and that's what I've been able to do. And I hope others can do that. Cause to say, that's how we get medicine back. When you get passionate physicians who love to do what they do, caring for people, that's what medicine's all about. Not this other stuff that's going on. Right. And so I, I hope, you know, other people can, can reach their Ikigai. That, that would be awesome. I think that's solid advice for, for trainees and for people coming out, because I think it does, it took me several years to kind of uh, and not that I've found my icky guy, but, you know, I like the balance I have between back table and clinical practice. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, you see, you see people in academics who have found that they really enjoy the, the balance of research and, um, clinical practice and they, and they get that 50, 50 time and, and they're in their kind of sweet spot. It's rare, but you do see, I, I do see colleagues that are still really satisfied with, with that. And, and you can, and it's achievable as, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes people think, well, I just can't do this, but you can, like, you really can do it if, if you really want to, uh, and you have the drive to do it. And at the same time, you also have to take your time. Like it, that seems kind of maybe counterintuitive, but you know, when I talk to like trainees and so forth that want to do this, you know, I tell them first, you know, get the best training that you can get, right. like really try to be the best interventional physician, the, the, the best clinical training, the best interventional skills, wherever that is, get the skill set first. And then once you're a really good IR, then you can start thinking about some of these other things, but get the, get the best foothold and, and foundation that you can. Right. One last question I have for you. You, I saw you speak at the last OEI. I've seen, I've seen you speak at a number of OEISs and SIRs, but most recently was September OEIS. Anything that you saw at the meeting that uh, you're really excited about in terms of clinical innovations going forward? I know we, we had some recent reimbursement cuts, which you mentioned as well, but anything that you're excited about and not, there's no like, you know, not dreaded about? Oh, no. I mean, I, I'm very excited about our specialty. I mean, I think we're, we're the innovators. We're commonly, we're constantly coming up with different interventions to handle different problems. Uh, I'm excited about the, uh, you know, musculoskeletal intervention. You mentioned Sonny Bagla. Uh, I'm a yeah. big Sonny Bagla fan. I mean, I think he's done great work out there and to see him talk about some of these interventions that he's doing, you know, whether it's knee or shoulder, you know, I, I think that opens up a whole host of possibilities. I certainly, I think there's reason for cautious optimism on the obesity front and gastric embolization. Um, certainly prostate is making, you know, good strides in that space. So, you know, I think it's, you know, good news for IR and try not to listen to all the other noise. I mean, it's hard to not hear it, but, you know, don't let it dissuade you from doing what you want to do and what you know out there is, is possible. And, you know, I, I think that as a specialty, I think we're in the sweet spot of all specialties. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I do think it's, we're in a perfect spot to 
to do, you know, OBLs and outpatient work because everything is heading in the outpatient direction and who better to be doing these things than us. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show again. We really appreciate your time. And uh, to the back table listeners, again, you can find all previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, backtable.com. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.